So, gentlemen, what shall we discuss? There was one, one thing you touched on that I think me and Christopher were curious to maybe hear you elaborate a bit on, which is when, when the Dana was offered and we were chatting with the, the Sri Lankan gentleman. Uh, you mentioned something about how the spiritual practice can take three forms. Oh, yeah, vocation, marriage, and monasticism. Yeah. I don't know if that's canonical, but that's the way I've always thought, thought of it. But there was a, a very erudite Sri Lankan uh, Ananda Kumar Swami, who was the, I think he was the curator of the Boston Museum, and very, very eloquent, and he kind of had some really interesting insights about Buddhist philosophy of work, and I think he, that's where I got some of those ideas. So my ideas around growth in the spiritual life are um, very much based on uh, having lived a, a very um, socially disciplined life that required a lot of self-surrender and I could really see the profit of that. Um, so then sort of rummaging around through literature and so on and kind of I could see how uh, anything that I had that someone had to commit to which was which was significantly bigger than their own capacity to control it and something that had a sense of self-surrender in it would create the same kind of possibility I've had in understanding myself. You just see, see with my brother, family life, kids, I mean that's a that's enormous commitment, lifetime commitment. Uh, I could, you know, just seeing other families, how uh, family life can be fruitful or not fruitful in the spiritual life. It certainly is not a guarantee, just as monastic life is not a guarantee. So you have to have the Dharma in whatever uh, lifestyle you, you, you choose. And But there is a possibility in a life of family that um, that need to Surrender, like, like I imagine kids, you, you have to, you have to make sure there's food on the table. The mortgage is paid, the kids got clothing to go to school. If you got the flu too bad, you still got to bring the bread home, right? So, uh, you know, that sense of um, serving something bigger than yourself, I could see would be very, potentially spiritually very, very um, um, profitable, is it too Philistine word, but very uh, helpful understanding yourself. Having said that, you know, when Paul Cha is saying there in the last reading that that horrible mixture of deep, deep love for someone, but deep, deep fear of their demise, of their of being hurt or something like that, that must be, that must really tear at your heart's, heartstrings. So that would be uh, much more difficult than, say, monastic life. A monastic life, there is self-surrender, but there isn't that that deep bond with with a partner or or the kids. But having said that, monastic life, its challenge is to open the heart, because there isn't a natural avenue of opening the heart. It's not really it's not really so necessary. Whereas I imagine, if you if you're at the birth of of your child, whether you're the father or the mother. Um, obviously, the mother has a whole different biological relationship, but still, um, that must be amazing, and the bond there. So we, as monastics, we don't have that that bonding. So we have the advantage of not having that deep attachment, but we have the disadvantage that we don't have the a deep love that can be brought forth from from that kind of relationship, and also. Um, a marriage which is you know, virtuous and works. I know marriages sometimes don't work, but sometimes they do work. And then you could see how that could be a real 
deep opening of the heart, but then the, the fear of the loss and the loneliness when that's gone. So it's a sort of double-edged sword. Monasticism can be very um, can become a real desert of self-control and watching yourself and being mindful and trying to attain. You know that can be a real your heart can you can, your heart can die. I've certainly seen that. So family life again. I I've never lived family life, so maybe I'm just talking through a really kind of naive perspective. And vocation then is, is the third, and that's that's that sense of self-surrender to a project which is about human goodness and giving yourself to that uh, as a vehicle for not just helping human society but also understanding greed, hatred, and delusion in your own mind. So let's say if someone is working in hospice, some people I talk to who work in hospice, do volunteer work or whatever, they find it incredibly um, spiritual. Their work is one of, okay, how can I take this time and serve uh, this person or these people who are at the end of their life? So it's not about what they can get out of it for themselves, but it's how they can serve, and from that service they get a lot, actually. There's one lady I know who works in, she works for UNHCR, and she's Sri Lankan, she's a tiny lady, about five foot tall. The story about her is that the wind in Wellington once picked her up, <laughs> took her down about ten feet down the road. Wellington can be very windy, but that's ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, she's in Afghanistan, you know, she's in the Sudan, She's in uh, Turkey, Syrian Boy. She's in the worst places because she's one of the. I think she was. I think she's the chief person for UNHCR and the refugee camps in, in Afghanistan. So she's talking to warlords, right? She's got nine languages. She's an absolutely brilliant woman, and I I know her mother much much better, who's eighty eighty plus, and. I said, how is Maya doing? She says, oh, yeah, she loves it. She loves going back there. So me, I can't imagine. I would just be so worried about everyone. So that would not work for me. I'd just freak out. That wouldn't be my, my, my chosen location. But you, you can see how, because she has a, an avenue of giving and serving and learning how to be quite strong in situations that... It's kind of must be spiritually very, very uplifting. So all all those those different areas of life that we have, they needn't be like, you know, like vocation can be a, an ongoing thing among other things that you do. But there is some sense of service in it. I I, I think monasticism, when it doesn't have self surrender and gratitude in it, I don't think it works very well. I think it becomes a kind of leave me alone. I'm meditating mindset. It can be a calming thing, but I wonder if it really opens the heart and gets to the depths of some of the ego stuff we have to face. So none of them, none of them are guarantees, but to me, the, the, the principle of a social life that is not simply something that I always organize for myself, that I can, it can be organized for me to some extent, and then I can just sit and watch. So any any work actually has that potential, you know. Translating, you have a you have a contract that you have to do, <clears throat> and you have to get it finished, and you've got all these parameters, and and you just have to do it. So you go for it. But the thing about the, some of the worldly things that there the goals are so compelling, and so stressful that it's so very hard to actually practice dhamma in them. You get kind of mentally overwhelmed with stuff. The, th- the Buddhist theories of work are that 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 work is to have a, to have a livelihood where you can put food on the table and have shelter and protect your family in a way which is decent, where you can develop skills as a human being, um, both social and and um, technical or manual or skills, you know? and that can be a place where you can develop. The spiritual side of your life—that's sort of usual definitions of, of 
uh, right livelihood. So sometimes when you see right livelihood in, in the text, it's like what you can't do. Don't sell guns and booze, right? And don't sell people and don't, um, don't, usury is one of them too. Right? Don't charge 30% to some poor guy who can't cash his check because he's got no um, residence or something like that. So usually they're, they're kind of seen in there, don't, don't, don't do. A lifestyle where you can have enough presence of mind where you're not overwhelmed, where you're not totally bored out of your head, where you can, you can see an aggressive boss and you can work with that and become a stronger person, or you can see domineering in yourself and not go that way and become a more compassionate person, all of that, all of that would be part of right livelihood. I think Ajahn Prayuto probably has really good literature on that. There's not too much written about that. Maybe in, among lay people, I don't, because I don't read books like that much. Because I've got my livelihood set up. <laughs> but when I, you know, when I understood that, probably through Ajahn Chah, there was a kind of freedom. I understood that if I can just give up to this and let it take me, then I can watch. Before that, I was just, you know, manipulating the world to maximize my own well-being, whatever I thought of, which was not wrong. But, you know, that sense of just being able to give up to something, very special. Well, like you, you're in community now, right? So you've, you've given up to be in this situation for three months, and if you want to jump the wall, you can. <laughs> but no, no, you watch, right? You don't like this, or don't like that, or... This could be different, that can be different. So you, 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 you take the vehicle now and, you, and you're just going to drive in this Volkswagen for three months. It doesn't have to be a Cadillac. You drive in this Volkswagen for three months and within that you watch the scenery. And the scenery is what your mind throws up. And, what, and, and you have a freedom now to watch. If you, if you think the scenery should always be whatever, then you get out you know, and you take another car. But then, you're, then you don't have that sense of what a, what a vehicle can, can be for you, you know, something that you, takes you. And, and the thing about monasticism or, or Buddhist commitments, they're not like, we don't take vows, so I could, I could get out any time. I don't know what to do with my life. <laughs> I mean, I'm probably phoning you guys, hey, how do you do this? <laughs> but I've got a vehicle within which I've come up against monks I really like, Monks are really dislike. Social situation I found very, very uplifting. Social situations are very dysfunctional. It all was all there, but it was never. It was never really immoral, and any kind of um, gross immoral tendencies I might have had were always checked by this powerful, powerful vehicle. So I could never really, I could never really do much wrong you know, as a monk, really. So it kind of saved me from the, you know those kinds of habits. So you can see, you can see, like with vocation, some people are so attached to the vocation they get burned out. So that's not a guarantee. They become social workers, and then they're bitter because the world hasn't changed according to their ideals as they entered into their social work. Or someone becomes a, a monastic, and you know they find that the abbot is a bit of a creep. <laughs> Community's a bit dysfunctional, and all the Monks are falling asleep all the time, <laughs> or something like that. And, oh God, I didn't, I didn't come here for that. And so there can be disappointment and person leaves because of that. So such a social situation has to be something that you, you agree upon morally. You know, like ethically, this is okay. You know, the smoke's a bit eccentric, or kids are a bit off today. But morally, I know this is. This is doable. I can do this. And then you can give up to it. But you can't give up to it if you have no faith in it. You know, if you don't trust it. You need, you need a lot of trust to let go. Like, no, you all trust being here. Right? And you're willing to give up a lot and give a lot. Because, you know, you know it's safe and moral and we've got a pretty good track record here and so on. So just like maybe as you're, as you're living these three months, just consider what, what that is is as right livelihood in your practice, rather than just being, being a time of retreat, which it is. But you're, you're working, and you're serving, and you're giving, 
and you're making my life really easy. When I go, I, after lunch, I say, holy smoke, there's nothing to do. I got no responsibility. It's so, such a happy feeling. And I can go and meditate and read or whatever. So, your, your offering to us and then to the wider community, because by your, your service to this place, too, keeps it going, means that when April comes around, we've got a lot of work to do, we can really engage with the work, and really, you know, everyone can join in that, but you give us that kind of space to do a different kind of work. So, uh, maybe, you know, think about that, that what you're doing is right livelihood, and then within that right livelihood, what are you doing? You're, you're giving up personal preferences for the sake of something larger, service, and, and then... Sure, you'll have your, your um, different ways to perceive how it should be done, but in the whole scheme of things, it's no big deal. You know, if, you, if you think about how human society fights and argues and just goes for each other's throats, it's no, our differences are really, 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 really minimal. So, you know, see how right livelihood, you're practicing the right livelihood, and... Um, See how there's like there's niggling things maybe that are bothersome, but try to step back and say, actually, keeping precepts. These people are keeping precepts. Oh, and we're offering food. They seem to be pretty happy. These guys, you know, <laughs> they got lots of cheese, and their the sickness is gone. And you so like you're you're parenting us in some way. You're kind of taking care of us. But it's really the the whole heart of the practice is that sense of generosity and service. And then just contemplate, like at the end of three months, what is, say, right livelihood in that vein for you? How, you know, what part of it's useful and what's, what's doable in the world? So, you know, I mean, this is an extraordinary situation. So somehow we all have some good karma to be here and doing this. I've never really wanted to ordain. I've been a lifer. <laughs> so I, I really, it kind of fit me really well. I've not liked this life all the time, but I didn't kind of join for that reason. But as a spiritual vehicle. When you first ordained, did you have the sense that you were ordaining for life? You know what? That thought has never really been any big deal for me. It's just like, I asked I asked some other monks, did you ordain for life? Um, some said, yeah. Like Ajahn Pasan ordained to get a visa. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I, I've thought about that often. I never had that sense, uh, I'm going to do this for life. It was always, there's nothing, it's more like I, there's nothing else to do. So certainly when I got disgruntled, I think, well, what options have I got? I think, well, no, 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 well, I'm going to have to stay. <laughs> so it was more, more either I really was inspired to stay or really, again, if I can't figure it out in this social situation, where am I going to figure out? Where am I going to be free from suffering? I think the early years are very important that I had Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Tomato to inspire a guy. That was very good, very helpful. Had a lot, a lot of wrong views, a lot of wrong energy, which wasn't bad, but it was really um, much too fierce, much too self-critical, not contemplative enough, too driven. That kind of stuff caused me a lot of suffering. And just being with Ajahn Tomato and Ajahn Chah constantly tempered that into something which was okay. Me. You make some effort, but don't kill yourself. <laughs> it's not that serious. It's very helpful. When you were around Ajahn Chah, was your tie good enough to the older? Not really. Not really to, to pick up the nuance of his language. So, I missed a lot, but there's something about him that, I mean, it sounds very new agey, but just picked up on his vibes. I just want to be near the man. Even though I could be quite afraid of him, but not in a not in a way that he would ever hurt me, more in the way he could 
he could look into my mind and see how confused I was. <laughs> More like that. But yeah, sitting sitting with him and it was a kind of samadhi you got. You know the idea of satsang in Indian guru tradition? Satsang is being with the teacher. You know, that's what it was a lot. And just sat by his kutin and just hung out and walk away feeling balanced, inspired. And even though I, you know, I understand maybe 20%, there's something deeper going on. A lot of projection. You know, young monk and great master, so I'm sure I was projecting like a million percent onto him, but he, you know, he didn't need that, so he's fearless, authentic. But he would send me off a lot. <laughs> He'd say, okay, go to this monastery. Oh, no, please. <laughs> I had one. I, where we were, they were talking about building the road. Was that in the tape? Mm-hmm. Or in the, in the tape, was that in the book? Probably both. Both, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, I, was, I spent uh, about eight months there. Not, the road was built there. But when Ajahn Chah was alive, um, we'd go... We'd go to Wapapong, or all the branch monasteries, there weren't, weren't that many then. would gather at Wapapong on his birthday, which was June 16th. And then there'd be a kind of discussion of where monks could go for the Vasa. And the Vasa happened full moon of July. And it was a bit like a, like a horse auction. <laughs> and you'd, you'd be sitting there and you'd say, Okay, V, off you go. Go to Tam Pet. And in five minutes, you're gone. Very strange. So Alun Pacha would ask, Ajahn John, do you need a monk? How about a farang, Western monk? Or, uh, see, do you want one? (laughs) 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 Very odd. But in good humor. And the the senior monks kind of really took care of us. So I ended up at Tung Sang Pet. And then it was there for the Vasa. And then I went... Back for, I think I went back for the Wapaponkatina. So I'd been at Tamsangpet maybe four months. And I went back for the Wapaponkatina and I I said, after the Katina I was there, and I said to Lompacha, could I come back and, and live here at Wapapong? And he just looked at me. So I thought that meant no. So I dragged myself back to Tamsangpet. Four months later, I was at Wapapong again. He said, where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're lucky, yeah? That idea I was talking with you, Beatrice, the idea of, this is very important for me, that when St. Peter says to me, there's a low growling sound. Can everyone hear that? All right. So then I listen, I listen for the sound. I'm kind of searching for the sound. I can't hear that. Where is it? I can't hear that. So my listening is searching for an object. It's one kind of listening. And then maybe I hear, oh, that's what he's talking about. Yeah. Or I don't hear, so something wrong with my hearing here. Something. So, but that's the kind of a listening to, to, to search for the object. I can do that with sight. So Peter says to me, hey, look at that. It looks like a hawk. Where, where? I get very excited to say, oh, okay. and I look for the, so I'm looking for the object. But Christopher, we're talking about that smoothness of breath. I read in the book, when you need to make the breath smooth, I start to look for a smooth breath, so some kind of physical sensation I look for. So that's one way we pay attention, which is valid. Um, but then the other way to pay attention is to be receptive. So if I'm looking out the fields, and maybe I look around and there any hawks around, and then I, I, I let go of focus, and I just let this, the expanse of the field come to me. Or listening. Rather than seek, uh, searching for a particular sound, I just let sound come to me. Or bodily feeling. I just let the breath come into consciousness, whatever way its formation is. And that way of being aware, I think, is we do that less. We, we do the other more, obviously. So we do the other, like, um, if you 
if you're reading a really interesting, fascinating novel written by a really, you know, good wordsmith, and and the language is good and the plot is great, you're really absorbed into it. So that's one way of relating to the sense world through through excitement and through interest. Or someone is is talking and they're just you think they're talking rubbish, right? You're just fed up with them and you resist. I want to shut up. So you resist the sense experience. And that's very much how we relate to the sense experience and to thoughts and so on, is a kind of either infatuation with it or resistance to it or kind of getting caught up with it or trying to find um, some object or objective experience that we had, would like, or thinking this one is wrong. So there's a kind of evaluation and struggle and fight and, and all of that. And that's not wrong. We do that. But this other way of just allowing the the sense experience, including the mind, to be what it is and be receptive, I think that's a more, perhaps it's a more artistic way, or I don't know, maybe artists do that, but but, but that's a probably a, a less developed part of our of our way of paying attention. And that's, to me, and I've said this before, but the, the first way emphasizes the object. So Peter says to me, there's a growling sound outside, a low, low sound, and I go, where? So now I'm, I'm emphasizing the object. And then I let go of the searching, and I don't look for any particular sound, I just listen, I emphasize the listening. I look out to the field, where's the hawk? Where's the hawk? Where's the hawk? Look, 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 look. I'm emphasizing the object. And then I give up that and I say, oh, just let the let this, let this expanse come to me. I'm emphasizing looking. Body feeling, I'm trying to find the, the smooth breath or something like that. And where's the smooth breath? I'm trying to find this experience of smooth breath or what you were saying, trying to find the, the, ve- the sankara after you've noticed the end of a thought, right? So I'm, I'm looking for some kind of physical experience that's emphasizing the object. The other, well, what is this experience of no thought? Or what is the experience of breath now? Emphasizes the awareness. Yeah? So, to, to me, that, that differentiation is very, very important. Both, I need, to, need both to do, right? But it seems to me if I can't do the other, this sense of just being receptive, I don't think I'll find peace. Because I think the, the peace of the mind is not an objective experience. It's the knowing of objects coming and going. You see the difference? It sounds like maybe just philosophy, but it's, it is about our experience, the way we experience it. So, like on, like on a retreat, I don't know about you, I get lots of you know, memories of you know, people I get, that I got tangled with and anger comes up. That's pretty common. It just comes up. So, so if I'm emphasizing the object, then somehow that anger is a threat. Or that memory is a threat in some way because I want samadhi, I don't want this, this memory. But if I'm emphasizing awareness, then it's just another thing that's coming up. And my, my mind continually opens, so memory comes and goes, body feelings come and go, and I'm, I'm emphasizing the awareness. And the awareness is really where you find the peace of the mind, because that's, that's spacious and un, undifferentiated, unconditioned, not bound by, by history, by time, by pleasure and pain, it's not bound by that, it's different. And that's why it's so, so perhaps, it's not so much difficult, I think it's subtle, we don't usually do that. So I, 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 I train myself to do that kind of like out in nature, especially like big, big spaces in sky, I just train myself to not look for something. I do both, I look for birds, I like birding, but I can see something, I get obsessed with my binoculars. What's a bird? And then I see that, and I just put it down, and say, oh, just, just let this come. Let this moment come to me. You get a sense of the knowing. So that way is we're, we're emphasizing the knowing. So the teachings around that are to notice change. So when you pick up the perception of change, you're emphasizing the knowing. When you pick up the desire to have an objective experience, then you pick up the object and get involved with that. So you're making a... Christopher Kuti pie, right? And, and you taste it, you know, a little more salt. Huh? 
So you're 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 looking at the objective world, trying to make it a better a better world. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? And we do we do we do that a lot, but this other way. And if if you think about it, is the spiritual life? Are we seeking an object, an objective experience? So so, so let's say you get. You, you you know you, something happens. So you go outside and it's, and it's beautiful. Somehow the light's very very beautiful, and your mind drops craving. You know, it drops agendas. It it kind of drops the whole trying to get somewhere or be something, and your mind's peaceful. So then you might think, well, oh yeah, okay, it's because the sun is like that, and the, Moon's like that, and the snow is like that. It was the objective experience. And so you start to look for the same objective experience. But actually, what we're looking for is not an experience. We're looking for the end of desire. That's what we've had. And we think that the end of desire is an experience. It's not. The end of desire you can know all the time. So that, that's what the Third Noble Truth is about. It's about um, the end of becoming, the end of desire. So, so when we're seeking something, it's a good question to put here. Am I searching for an object or an objective experience, or am I searching for the end of desire? And and so, so third noble truth is saying, well, that's that's what the search is really about, rather than an object. So when you start to emphasize awareness rather than the objects of awareness, you start to emphasize the knowing. That's where desire ends, because you can see desire come and go in the knowing. And so you see desire come and go, and you see the cessation of desire, but the knowing's always there. And you go, well, that's what I'm searching for, really. And then where you are doesn't matter so much. You know, you know your direct experience. But if, if you think that the end of desire is somewhere with some people, then you're kind of stuck. And certainly some situations are more conducive to peace than others, right? So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate going to Syria to do this. <laughs> or, or, you know, something crazy like that, or rolling in the snow without a coat on, or something like that. But, but just that whole attitude of seeking an object, and is that really what we're looking for? Are we looking for the end of desire? Now, when, when desire ceases, and it's happening all the time, we're not. We're not vacuous idiots. You know, we still love, we have compassion, we function, we can focus, we can make fantastic beef pies. <laughs> you can do all kinds of things. But the objective is no longer to... You, you kind of, it's a kind of reverse, isn't it? And you find your real home in, a, in, another, in, a, in another way of looking at things. To me, that, that's what renunciation is based on. And then you can see, yeah, okay, I, I, uh, I want to get something, maybe whatever it is, some emotion or some social situation, but what am I really looking for? I'm looking for the end of desire. And then you start to look at desire, how that operates and how to put it down. That makes sense? Ajahn Tomato was, he teaches on something called Nada Sound. Yes, yeah. I was just wondering if... The nada? Yeah. Yeah, you can hear it all the time. I can hear the nada. Yeah. So, it's, it's when the mind is very relaxed. And it's not, not engaged with becoming. That, that's, the, I think, the secret. It's not engaged with objects. It has no, no kind of agenda of trying to get something else. It, it's resting in the present moment. Then there's space, silence, and then that nada becomes apparent. So it's a kind of sign of, for me, it's a, it's a sign of, of non-desire, of non-distraction, of non-resistance, of non-becoming. The, the, the downside of it is I start to look for it. I start to look, try to find the nada, and then you're caught in that same thing I was just talking about. And that's where people, you know, the lone post says, you know, if you hear the nada, use it. And I heard it. I got it. You know, they think it's it's some kind of attainment because it gets it gets exalted to such an extent. But but if you look at it more from formable truths and letting go of desire, 
You see, when your mind really just rests and not seeking anything, sometimes you hear it. But I don't think the hearing of that is as important as the letting go of desire. Because the danger is you objectify it and you start to look for it and so on. You think, I have it, and then you think, have it, you have the conceit. And I've seen people do that too. I've got it. Like they're in the in crowd. <laughs> kind of another spiritual materialism. But the consistent use of it would be very much like a samadhi object, where so he would, the way he would train, he would say, well, if you hear that, hold it for 15 seconds. Hold your mind in that still emptiness for 15 seconds and be with that. So you train in, in sustained stillness with that. But if, you, if you're not hearing it, then you get caught in that kind of desire. So it's more like, take the instruction and forget about it. And then if you notice it, notice more what the mind, how the mind is when that becomes apparent. How is the mind when that becomes apparent? It's relaxed, no desire, present, silent, empty. Then if you, if you want to use it, use that. A lot of people actually find it better than, like Tina said, oh, sorry. she finds it more, more uh, skillful for her than, than um, Anapanasati. So when she's on Anapanasati, she gets more controlling. And when she does that, it's more expansive. So she uses it quite consistently. I think if you get, if you, for me, if you get the principles right, to me, there is a, there is a kind of right, right action springs from right understanding. You know, when I really understand what grasping of objective reality is, what letting go is, I mean, all those words are so common, what non, non-becoming is like, what becoming, when I understand that, both intellectually but also experientially, then whatever practices I do are grounded, are grounded in right understanding, and, then, and they have a kind of consistency. Welcoming without indulging. Aha, good one, yeah. <laughs> Acceptance without indulgence, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I've noticed it's getting a little bit easier to welcome a negative emotion, like mm-hmm. anger or irritation. But then, being able to stay with it, I understand it a little bit more. But then, it kind of gives a sense of power. And when do you welcome without indulging? Well, how would you define what's the difference between welcoming and indulging for you? Do you have you seen that? Can you kind of describe that? Well, hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking maybe it's in the duration of the emotion. Yeah, or the story that comes with it. What are the mechanisms of indulgence. How can I indulge in something? Let's say I have a memory of something that was unkind done to me 10 years ago. And I'm walking and my mind's got, no, it's not preoccupied, and that memory comes up. So that to me is um, not right or wrong. Right? It's just part of flow of consciousness that happens to be this mind's uh, karma. At some point, there has to be acceptance. This is the way it is now, right? I mean, you have to... You have to see that it's a natural occurrence. So, that, I think, would be the first differentiation between indulgence and... resistance, say. That you would feel that any arising of that nature would be wrong. So that, to me, would be an extreme. Because that's not, for me, nature. The way... The nature of my consciousness works is that there are memories, right? and that the memories are also habits. So that we, so what I've seen is that something will, will trigger irritation, and that irritation will have a kind of always have a potential, stronger or weaker, but it'll have a potential to come up. It gets triggered by something. Yeah, I don't. Not to think that I should never, that irritation or annoyance should, should never get triggered, to me, seems not natural. 
So that's one way I would first of all look at it. Is your definition of indulgence include all arisings of anything negative? No. Huh? I hope not, because then you're finished. <laughs> you think about it, right? There's just no way you're gonna you're gonna be saying. So does so that I mean it's just a kind of self questioning. Does your your definition because that's what we're trying to get to now. What do you define by indulgence and welcoming? Where where's your rather than my definition for you? But when something arises which is perceived as negative or whatever, do you think that's wrong? That's what you have to look at. Or can you see it? Well, I didn't do this. It just arose. I didn't plan this. I didn't like plot. And it's true, isn't it? That's a very good reflection. You don't, you don't, you don't plot to feel annoyed. In fact, you don't want to feel annoyed, but you feel annoyed. So, so that spontaneous arising according to causes and conditions, we'd say, is karma, a karmic result of the mind being conditioned a certain way, and and that's natural. So that belongs, right? So then, where, where in that arising, right, when does it become an indulgence? That's what you have to look at for yourself. Where, where do you define as an indulgence, and where is it an indulgence? So you might you might define indulgence as any lingering of that emotion. You might define that from idealism. So you might your ideal might be that you know if I have a strong practice, any arising will it will cease, and that any any. Any float, floating of this in the mind for a minute or a millisecond or an hour, it's all wrong. Right? And, and that would be an idealism which would be very destructive because you and I know that our emotional life is, is very powerful and sometimes powerful things can get triggered which can reverberate for a long time. Right? So again, so where might indulgence come? Where would, if you take it the other way, what would be correct restraint? So there's indulgence, but what would be correct restraint? So on one hand, if you're saying indulgence is a volitional kind of participation with the emotion, then restraint could be a kind of skillful participation as well, right? So what would restraint look like? Well, for me, restraint would be I would know the condition, and then I could see my mind wanting to be, get reborn into thought, and I can see my mind wanting to get reborn into the desire to say something. I could see my mind trying to get reborn into uh, a narrative. I could see my mind maybe even wanting to get reborn into doing something physical. I could see the movement from that churning of an emotion, say, to the wanting to go to the next step and then follow it with thought, Follow it with action, follow it with speech. And, and to me, mindfulness would be the, the capacity to really stay attentive to the mood, accept it, welcome it, it all belongs, and then to see this kind of pull to get reborn into it. You know the teaching around dependent origination? In that 12-factor teaching, you have uh, Vedana, you have Pasa, Vedana, Tanha, Upadana. Pasa is contact. So, being incarnate in a sense body and having emotions and so on, uh, there's constantly contact going on. Huh? And also contact with memory. So it's not just contact with the, with the snow and with the speech of people, but it's also with uh, memory patterns. It's also contact with um, habitual tendencies to greed, hatred and delusion. You know, those are there too, aren't they? You know, the kind of potential, right? So contact includes all that which could come up. Pasa Vedana, and within that, within those contacts, you have pleasant and unpleasant. So you get, you know, maybe, maybe um, an oma and aunties come in here. Maybe you're reminded of your aunties, right? And, and that triggers off a deep feeling of, oh, auntie and oma, how are you, right? And that is a kind of beautiful, beautiful feeling. 
And then you get another one feeling maybe you feel really homesick or lonely, right? And it's a different kind of a feeling. But you can see that both of them are, are a part of the way we're, we're made up. So you have the Vedana, the feeling of it being, oh it's, oh, it's really nice to be with these ladies. They're so kind and sweet and generous. And, oh gosh, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm just, I just want to go to Starbucks and have a coffee or something, something like that. So, so one, is, one is attractive and one is not attractive, right? There's a dependent origination. And then from, so you have pasta, vedana, and then you have tanha. And tanha is the craving. And the craving then is for the pleasant more, for the unpleasant less. So the resistance to the unpleasant, don't want any more of that, thank you. And the perpetuation or increase of the pleasant. And then from that you get attachment, which is in thought. And you start to fuel it, you start to think it, you start to indulge in it. That upadana is indulgence. Right? Let's say if someone starts to feel a bit antsy and think, oh gosh, this is a with monks, say. A monk starts, has been here maybe for four or five years and he starts to get really negative about the polychanting. So he starts to have a perception that polychanting is negative. So now, every time he comes into the room, the Vedana of the chanting is negative. And then the craving is not to have the negative. Now, if he's skillful, he just sees the negative as negative, and he breaks the chain of dependent origination right there, constantly. So he comes to the morning meeting, and the poly chanting starts, ah, poly chanting. No, this is what not liking feels like. Not liking feels this way. Hmm? This is where the link breaks. That's where the link breaks. When you get aware and you just say... This, yeah. This This is the feeling of not liking, and you don't take it to attachment. Or this is the feeling of liking and not taking it to attachment. You, you, you stay in the middle. So the monk starts to come to the morning meditation. And he sits down and chanting starts up and it's all, you know, half the monks have got no voices left and people are sneezing and coughing. He says, oh, poly chanting. And now he, he begins to go back to his kuti and he thinks, poly chanting, poly chanting, Theravada Buddhism. You know, and he starts to feed this one perception and feeds it and creates a reality. So every time he comes in, oh, you see, I told you it was terrible. And he starts to believe in it, and that's rebirth, attachment. And this is also indulgence. And that's indulgence. Because he keeps creating. Yeah, he keeps creating that, yeah. The other, he comes to the morning chanting. And he, he feels he should be a good monk. You know, he feels really good. So I should, and, and he feels this crappy chant. Oh, no, I shouldn't feel that way. You know, I really like this chanting. It becomes inauthentic. Well, this is, you know, I'm really just try to do this chanting, but there's a lot of ego in it. So, and he tries to say, yeah, this is, you know, I'm, I'm really, I shouldn't feel this way. You know, I should be grateful. Uh, I, I, I should, I should, I should, I should. And he starts to feel um, guilty about not liking the chanting, right? That's also attachment, but that's indulgence in the negative. Both of them are fed by sense of I. So what what the indulgence or, or what not what heedlessness is is the sense of I that arises in that scenario in different ways, and letting go is not taking it personally, seeing it as an object seeing it as a nietzsche dukkanata, emphasizing the awareness rather than the object of awareness. That's where you break the cycle of dependent origination. That's where you're always working. Pasa, Vedana, Tana, Upadana. That's where you're always working. Always. And, and, the, and Upadana is the kind of birth of a sense of I around the whatever the condition happens to be. So it might be, um, I shouldn't be this way, or but it's always a sense of me and mine rather than seeing... This is just Vedana, or this is just Tanha, it's just an object. So that's why we emphasize the awareness rather than the object of awareness. That makes sense. So you don't have to have any reason to let go. Well, p- freedom. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the, 
joy, happiness, <laughs> peace, well-being, yeehaw. <laughs> and you, the reason is because it's suffering. You know, yeah, that's what the letting go is. Yeah. You just realize, I don't want to suffer anymore. It's not a problem. And you know, that's where a sense of humor comes. That's where welcoming comes. That's where compassion. All of those things, you know, start to play in place. You know, when you can make a when you can make a joke about yourself. You know, you're getting all uptight and you say, "Ah, oh, Beatrice, there you go again." And you know how that relieves you. You kind of you got a perspective. You got some distance. But when you take it seriously, oh, it's terrible. I shouldn't be this way. You're caught in upadana in attachment. It's a very much self view that that the self identity with the khandas. That's that's the sort of central problem. And it's always like just being so caught up in the khandas rather than seeing the awareness of them as change. That's the letting go when you see them as changing things. So you can see how you have to be very attentive. So if you have, let's say, if you're doing walking meditation and you've got some old habit, cyclical habit coming up, then use that to sharpen your attention. So realize when it come up and say, okay. I'm going to try to notice when the, my mind goes into self-thinking. Where I don't think you can't, you're not going to have it. Just I'm going to see how that, what is that kind of magnetic pull? I'm going to try to notice, really stay in the moment. And that really sharpens your, your uh, samadhi. Not that I'm going to control it and it's not going to happen. That, that's still craving. This is more like, hmm, where's that link? And then you're just more like, oh, I see the mind going off into thought. And it's quite, actually quite interesting. Okay. You see, oh, this is the way the mind works. But it is constantly craving. That's the problem. Yeah, but there are there are gaps, and that's and that's when you, you let go of thinking. You know, like because the the, the the upadana is really the creation is is perpetuated through thought, and then you notice the thought ends. Actually, if you can notice that space, that's the end of becoming, the end of craving, the end of self. But quite often, we're so conditioned then to react and, and start looking for something or doing something or having a program or whatever. And so the suggestion is, well, notice a gap. So again, listening, receptive, doing that deliberately, noticing the gap when you're outside or like when you, when, like when you sit down, you, you go to your room and you sit down, just, just sit down and then feel the space in the room. Oh, here I am. You kind of bring the mind to that sense of non-becoming constantly, so that when 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 you get caught by things, you can go to that space of non-becoming. It's like refuge. It's refuge. Thank you. All right. Pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah. <laughs>